what inspired you to do this podcast? So whenever I was in high school, uh, well, for one, I am undocumented. I came to the U.S. from Venezuela uh, in 2001, and uh, I've grown up undocumented. And so whenever wow. I was in high school, I uh, didn't have a driver's license, but I was super involved in music, band, uh, musicals, show choir, whatever it was. And so there would be a lot of events that would happen into the evening. And uh, sometimes like my parents wouldn't be able to pick me up. And so I'd have to get rides from friends and being in high school, it's like everyone else drives. And so what would happen is that like after these events would end at like 10, 11, whatever PM, uh, I'd have a friend drive me home and we'd have these super long conversations about deep stuff and the universe and everything, the, the things that every teenage kid wants to talk about, but never gets a chance to. Um, mm. and I, I realized that that was the way that I developed my closest relationships with people. And so the, that sort of deep conversation that happens after everyone's kind of tired or, you know, at a sleepover whenever you're like about to fall asleep. But then that's whenever like the real stuff come out, comes out and all the pretense of like trying to save face or whatever goes away. You're finally with your friends and you can talk about like, I actually really feel this way about this thing. And there's a really good open environment that happens with that. And I feel like I've always been bad at small talk. Um, <laughs> mm. uh, I was a, a cashier for some time um, and I hated small talk <laughs> and I couldn't just do small talk. And if people tried, I, I would either just like shut it down or accidentally like let it veer into like deeper conversation. And I was like, well, all right, well, that'll be... 1274 go ahead uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> and so um the the way that the podcast kind of began is that i'm i started in 2016 and so mm -hmm. the uh that kind of model of these deep conversations that i have with good friends uh kind of became the way i would become good friends with people and I always felt like the spirituality conversation was always a way of getting to know people on a deeper level. But then also at the time, uh, I grew up Catholic and I had recently gone through like my falling out of religion and mm -hmm. I was trying to discover what spirituality meant for me at that time. And so the... The combination of those things is that like I had to define spirituality for myself. I didn't fall out of religion because I uh, was angry at the church. I fell out of religion because I felt like it didn't love enough and I wanted to love more. And so that kind of spirituality, I felt like I didn't get to have a lot of conversations with people about, especially because growing up Catholic, it, it kind of gets shut down a lot too. And yeah, so, <laughs> um, and what I've come to find is that even people who are quote unquote, super religious or super Christian or whatever it might be, um, 
everyone has their own version of what they believe. And uh, that's kind of been one of the bigger things that I've learned through. I mean, uh, this is episode 222. Uh, so I've been wow. doing this for a while. And I mean, most um, people stop at like seven episodes. So <laughs> off. How much time do you spend a week on the show? Um, it depends. So I'm kind of in a phase right now where I'm like asking a bunch of people to be on the podcast because COVID makes it convenient for people to, uh, have time to dedicate to really long, deep conversations. Um, so it, it's the time that I spend recording and then, uh, I went to school for music production. So I, I already am an audio engineer. And so this, the, the audio part of it was kind I of, I can like, tell by your room, it's got, <laughs> you got some great equipment and soundproofing yeah. stuff. You got a good setup. <laughs> um, but, uh, the audio part was kind of a given. And so I'm sure for, for some people that try to start podcasts, it's like, Oh crap. Like how do I use all this audio equipment and audacity and making it sound good? And, uh, getting a recorder and all that stuff. I already kind of knew about that stuff through going to school for it. And so the, the audio part isn't too bad for me. It, it probably takes about half the time of the podcast to edit the podcast. But if I do like two of them in a row and the sound is the same, then I'll just use the same session and use all the same settings for that because it all sounds the same anyways. Um, and so that actually cuts that time way down. And so I'm trying to be efficient with how much time goes into it. Um, but yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's not your main, your main gig, right? You do it on the side Yeah, and you don't do it for money. Obviously you do it for meeting interesting people and conversations, or do you want it to become a business or is it a business? Um, I think that, I mean, I mean four years you were early, right? You were early <laughs> to the game. So, yeah, oh, it's funny. Cause that's not the first time that I've heard that I was like early to podcasting. And even at, at the time that I started, I had been listening to, to podcasts. I was an avid consumer of podcasts since mm-hmm. like 2012. Um, and who, so who are your favorite podcasters, um, right now, uh, Making sense, Sam Harris. Um, yeah, of course, he's amazing, but he's an atheist. Yeah, yeah, um, and me too. So, and he oh, he geez. kind of helped me through that uh, that phase of like falling out of religion, and I I love Sam Harris's form of spirituality in that it's. Did not- you apply to be? Did you apply to Sam Harris's? Remember when he posted that job offering to kind of run his? <laughs> it was called Waking Up. Because yeah. I feel like I'm getting the feeling like you, I applied to that. Oh, really? I I, to, uh, yeah. I didn't because um, I, I was still in school at the time. I, um, ah, okay. Yeah, I I just finished my master's last year. And so the... Congrats. Like, I was, oh, thank you. But What was your master's in? Music composition. And awesome. so it's... I mean, it was very busy. And I'm like, well, I could try, but like that's... Sam Harris isn't one that has a small amount of things to do. So, uh, (laughs) yeah. Um, kind of having that side gig. Yeah. Where'd you grow up by the way? Because you mentioned kind of driving around. So grew up in the burbs. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I live and have lived in Oklahoma city since 2001. And so, 
uh, kind of odd for a Venezuelan family to decide that Oklahoma is where they wanted to go. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, like what's that? What, how, how'd that happen? My parents went, uh, to university here through like foreign exchange stuff because, okay. um, my uncle on my mom's side or one of my uncles, um, had heard about foreign exchange schools in Oklahoma cause he wanted to learn, uh, English and being a, a, a Spanish teacher, uh, and for whatever reason, I think OU had a like a thing in Venezuela at the time, which was like I don't know, like seventies or eighties. Um, whenever mm-hmm. before Venezuela became the thing that we know it as now, but the <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was I didn't know you were Venezuelan when I brought up the Venezuela Bitcoin. Sure, example. sure. Have you or your family had any experience kind of with Bitcoin in the context of Venezuela? Or? No, I think um, the the currency that they use in Venezuela right now is just dollars. Uh, no one uses bolivares, which is their currency. It's, it's, I mean, like you said, people are using that stuff for fires because it's like, oh, yeah, we... A, a loaf of bread will cost like a million. <laughs> That's the... <that. laughs> and it's, yeah, the inflation is so stupid that people just... I mean, you can call it black market, but it, it's just the market now, which is just like people just use dollars now um, because that's a yeah, currency that's that people use there. Uh, well, that's why I think that the stable coin use case for crypto is super interesting for Venezuela because, um, I, I, in fact, I think one of the creators of DAI, which is this decent, DAI, which is this decentralized stable coin, um, is Venezuelan. Because it's basically synthetic dollars, right? Digital dollars, but there are stories of people crossing the border from Venezuela to Colombia to convert um, currency into Bitcoin. Yeah, there's like a whole local Bitcoin scene there. I'm sure, because I mean, people gotta try their best somehow. But the the unfortunate part is that like money is not the only concern, and it's you know being. Uh, killed by mercenaries or being bombed by your own government or whatever that might be. Uh, there's a lot of insane stuff going there and I didn't grow up there. And so it's a little weird being kind of separate from the culture. Uh, I mean, I'm, I came here in 2001 whenever I was six. So like uh, I'm 24 now. And so I don't know Venezuela uh, I just kind of yeah. know the glimpses and the stories that like I hear from my family and it kind of, it sucks because there's a beautiful Venezuela somewhere in there. Uh, but I, I probably won't experience much of it in my lifetime, you know, <laughs> you, you never know. Yeah. What do you, what, um, are, how do your parents feel about the current situation in the U.S., do they draw any parallels to what's happening in Venezuela or what's happened there or not really? Yeah, they do. And there's an interesting thing that um, I, I'm kind of noticing is that they're they're quick to call out people who are communist-leaning or whatever, or they're trying to think, uh, dig up sort of, oh, there's uh, people trying to stir the pot that are like Venezuelan communist sympathizers that are like conspirators with Venezuela or whatever that might mean. And I feel like the, uh, the narrative has become more 
anti-communism than it has than it should be as opposed to anti-authoritarianism. I feel like the communism and authoritarianism to a Venezuelan person that has lived through it, those two are one in the same. Um, and I mean, we're kind of privileged enough to not live in a authoritarian communist country. And so the, we're able to kind of make the distinction between the two. Um, but it is kind of difficult whenever the whole rhetoric surrounding the thing is communism. Um, and I mean, if you kind of, I guess would, if I would dig down to my ideology, uh, it would probably have some sort of communist collectivist leading sort of ideas. But I think that the outright condemning of communist ideas is, is not necessarily conducive to good conversation because there's, mm. there's ideas to be had on, on all sides, but it like, Oh, since it's communism, it equals bad. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting because like, a commune, you know, like a kibbutz in Israel, mm -hmm. it works. I mean, we know that it works on a local kind of small level. We also know that on a national level, it doesn't work um, or it hasn't worked in the past. Mm -hmm. Capitalism seems to have been the best system, um, the better system. There might be a best system out there that we haven't discovered yet. And I actually think the ability of digital currencies to facilitate um, resource allocation and decision makings to kind of get rid of the who watches a watchman problem of communism right. could be could be interesting. But um, sorry, go ahead. No, yeah. Oh, well, I think that uh, a lot of the conversation seems to kind of still be revolving around the like pioneers of either one, and so it's like when we think of capitalism, we go all the way back to like. Adam Smith and these the sort of ideas of that, even though there's like new, more modern approaches to capitalism that do involve technology. And then the same thing, it's like, oh, communism, go all the way back to Karl Marx. But like Karl Marx didn't have the things that we have today in order to create a sort of communism in the way that we have now or that, that we could now. And so mm. the, the potential that technology has for uh, creating a different kind of world is something that maybe we should spend a little bit more time analyzing. And I feel like people are, but it's like, it still seems like the conversation goes so much back to Marx and Adam Smith whenever it's like, mm -hmm. there's, there's new people talking about these things now and the way in which technology can influence these things now. Um, and so I, in the same way that you've always been involved in technology, that's, that's always been a very important thing to me, e even in, in music making the, mm. the technology has, uh, been a really important role of the way that I make music versus just acoustic instruments. What kind of music do you work on? Um, so I'm a composer, producer, a songwriter so i have like all these different avenues and okay. so i think that i mean it's all still me but uh like i said my undergrad is in music production and so i can do a lot of electronic music i can 
I'm an audio engineer. I can do all that sort of stuff. But then also um, I'm a songwriter. And so I like telling stories through poetry and then writing songs that way. But then I'm also a composer and my master's degree is in music composition. And so it's like I've done like string quartets and brass quintets and chamber music and stuff like that. And so it's it seems like, again, kind of going back to the idea of technology is that we're kind of able to do everything now rather than uh, just sit in one realm because I feel like any mm. any person who knows how to use a computer and has some musical knowledge would be able to uh, download Finale and write a score. Uh, but at the same time, they'd be able to uh, get GarageBand and start making music that way. And so it's like you can be a songwriter, you can be a composer. Um, and I do all things music. So I would love to like, I, I've scored some short films and stuff like that, but I'd love to do video games. That's one of my big passions. Cool. <laughs> do you, what, what films did you score? Uh, well, they're like short films for like f- really small things. So uh, uh, a friend of mine, his name is Laurent Marzette. He recently moved mm-hmm. to Atlanta. And I've done a couple of his short films, um, one of them called Impaired, which did, I think it won an award in like some small film festival. And then um, I recently was in a creator's jam sort of thing where uh, the creator society, which I think is mostly based in L.A., um, because of COVID was, hey, we'll do a jam and had a a team of like two artists, a producer, a writer, a composer, and some voice actors. And so that was another fun experience in that. But I mean, being in Oklahoma, it's a little bit harder. (laughs) Yeah. Is is music how you make a living right now? Is that your your work? Because it sounds like you do a ton. Uh, The podcast. Right. Well, Composing a ton of music, you have your masters. Were it so easy, I I, <laughs> the, <laughs> I know that's the the classic conundrum of the, of the creator, right? You know, regardless of what you're creating, it's not. Well, the thing is, is that um, my main source of income right now is through a, a school called ACM at UCO, uh, which mm. was started by the the manager of the Flaming Lips. Um, and I, I worked mm. for him turning the master classes into uh, <laughs> uh, turning I the classes into um, podcasts and videos and stuff like that. And so I do audio and video production for them. But because of COVID, they uh, this the school had to have a like a budget <clears throat> freeze, and so mm. that job is going to go away soon. So it's like. All, all sorts of musical creative things are grinding to a halt by, right now. By and, so, yeah. and so like I don't have as many live gigs now. I don't have as many like live sound gigs. And so it's it's been tough for the audio music field. So I'm just trying side gigs. <laughs> Yeah, man, I feel you. It's it's definitely it's hard times, right? Like thirty plus million Americans without jobs. It's, yeah, and universities closed, and things are just starting to reopen. But it's wild. It is interesting how how large of an impact 
Like if you had told me that there'd be a global pandemic and you said, which industries would get hit the hardest, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been the, cre- like, I wouldn't have thought the creative class, mm-hmm. but it seems like the creative class was hit partially the hardest, which is really bad because I think we need, you know, we need artists, um, especially in times like these, right. To really step up. And so many people are stepping up digitally, which is great. Uh, but it's, it's, it's interesting how that, how that all played out. Yeah. Um, I, I do have a question for you though, in that because mm-hmm. of the, the nature of how we are separate now and because of the nature of music being so social in its live form and you being so involved in uh, festivals and stuff like that, is there a way of doing this thing in spite of it? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think like what Travis Scott did on Fortnite, you know, like that's a great example of the power of technology to bring people together. Um, Burning Man is doing a completely virtual Burning Man event this year they had to cancel, you know, the organization's really struggling. I mean, even South by Southwest, which is one of the largest music festivals in the world, I think they're bankrupt um, unless they got government funds. I'm not sure they did. So th- those are challenging times, but Burning Man is moving entirely virtual. Uh, and so there's going to be some really brilliant people working on different kinds of experiences. I know that there's new software coming up like Crowdcast and Hopin which are for, you know, creating kind of virtual conferences and gatherings. And I'm sure that that'll expand to the music space. And it certainly has for like the mental health practitioner <laughs> in teletherapy yeah. or like the wellness practitioner online. Um, uh, but yeah, I think looking towards kind of like the, what my friend Tim Chang calls the Zoom economy yeah. um, or the metaverse, you know, as, as uh a place for gathering is going to be great. And I also think we'll see, you know, with the manifestations and the protests in the U S and all over the world, I think we're also witnessing a desire, you know, we are social animals and we need to come together. And so we'll see a resurgence of events. I think, you know, you'll see more testing being done, more contact tracing to make sure that there's not a flare up at large events, but I think large events will come back in person, sporting events and, and festivals. Uh, it probably just won't be until next year. Yeah. And I, I do feel like people are probably being a little bit more optimistic in the, at the very beginning, it was like, oh yeah, the vaccine is like a year ish out. And it's like, that's, that's the minimum <laughs> amount of time. Yeah. It's like, I, I don't, as, as optimistic as people are trying to open up states again. Um, I mean, Oklahoma is one of the first states that tried to open it up. And I, I recently did a, a podcast with, uh, this, uh, female duo band in Baltimore called Outcalls, And they, uh, <laughs> they noticed that like, oh yeah, everyone is still kind of isolating and wearing masks and stuff in public. And I was mm-hmm. like, whoa, that's really different from here because Oklahoma is like, rather than occasionally seeing one person without a mask, it's actually the opposite. In Oklahoma, it's you occasionally see a person with a mask. Um, and that's yeah, pretty terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in France right now, just kind of randomly by chance. And, um, you know, I went out in Nice because they opened much earlier uh, than, than the U.S. 
Um, people are like on top of each other, not wearing masks uh, in restaurants and stuff. So, you know, we'll see what happens as far <laughs> as the second wave. It's just, it's just kind of a bummer that the whole world was shut down by governments and then, you know, they didn't, there really wasn't an effective plan put into place to monitor future outbreaks, to shore up the, the ICUs and hospital beds, specifically in the U.S., you know, and now everyone's just kind of piecemeal getting back out. And if there is a resurgence, it's like, if you don't shut down again, then you're not honoring the work that you did before to stop the curve. But at the same time, we do have more data and information that shows maybe the mortality rate is lower than we thought. And you have to watch the ICUs and hospital beds, but it just feels like there was a really poor job of governance um, in this situation. And now it's, it's like, if we get a second wave, that's much bigger. Was it all worth nothing to just put, you know, put 30 million people out of work? Mm. Um, and many people might not get those jobs back. So it's strange, definitely strange times. Yeah. Is there, is there a way? Cause I mean, you, you watched what happened with 2008, but that was, that was more of a like, numbers economic game this is kind of a a a physical game that affects the numbers economic thing is there is there a a way of like how did we come back from 2008 and how do we kind of come back from this well i think you'll see continued stimulus from the government um particularly if markets start to react which i think is kind of absurd if you think about it it's like the stock market goes down and so a ton the stock market is really like a pro- it's a projector of future economic outcomes. So I guess that makes sense. But, you know, the stock market goes down, a ton of capital is pumped into the system, but like the 20, 30 million people lose jobs and the stock market's ripping up upwards while that's happening. Um, you know, this might, uh, some people on the optimistic side are saying, starting to see a bounce back in, in turnover of inventory of cars and car sales starting to see, um, you know, jobless claims decrease, restaurants opening. Um, it feels like, you know, we're at the, we're in the middle of June, stimulus kind of rolls off. At the end of June, I think we'll see another stimulus program for small business to continue to support for another three months. I think there's going to be really, people are going to have a hard time making the case against universal basic income. That'll keep <laughs> happening. Um, you know, the $1,200 checks that that people got sent, I think there'll be more of that, more increase, continued increase in unemployment benefits to help get unemployed people through this. I would personally love to see some kind of jobs program um, where actually like we're doing things that are positive ROI for the country and the world, you know, building kind of more green energy sources, um, high speed rail in the United States, uh, fixing our kind of city infrastructure supporting small sustainable farms there's so much that you know that we can do to improve, to make this an opportunity to improve um which would be great but you know a lot of people a lot of economists are a lot of people are confused by the markets and the economy they're super um negative on it i do speak to optimists and the optimists say this might be the, the shortest recession ever with the greatest amount of concerted effort from um, from politicians and central bankers across the world to make a huge push for economic support really fast. I mean, you know, unprecedented $2 trillion fiscal stimulus that happened within a week. That's that 
pretty, that's about as effective as it gets in, in democratic society. And so, <laughs> you know, so if the economy does start to come back to normal as it is here, um, it might be short lived. That's the like optimistic stance on this. Even if we have a second wave, you know, if the, if the ICUs and hospitals are not overwhelmed, then, um, then we'll be okay. Uh, and, you know, viruses and, and these things are a reality of life, which is sad to say, but, you know, I wasn't a flu bro in the beginning. I was like, oh, it's just the flu. But as I look at the data and the numbers that come in and you see more cases rise, but the mortality rate across different cohorts is probably closer to like 0.2 versus 0.1 for the flu, then you're like, okay, you know, fewer people die from this than we thought as a result of contracting the virus. So as you know, the biggest threat has been hospital overwhelm. So as long as we can avoid that, then we can keep the economy open. Plus you have to factor in, it's kind of this, dis- that's why economics is the dismal science because you have to factor in like, you know, all of the lost life, there's this quote in um, the big short that Brad Pitt says for every 40,000 Americans unemployed for every 1% increase in unemployment, 40,000 Americans die or something like that. And so, you know, there are, there, we do have to worry about the mental health of citizens. We have to worry about people dying. Um, We have to worry about people out of work, being able to sustain themselves and their families, kids not going to school for a couple of, you know, for, for half a year to a year, what does that do to them and their development there's all these other consequences that we need to consider in addition to the loss of life. So I don't envy policymakers. I just wish that we had taken the opportunity over three months to really shore up our ICUs and hospitals to put in place better, better tracing and testing capabilities. And I don't think that we have. So we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I'm it's kind of epi- epidem- ep- epidemiologist. Right. I mean, you can't even pronounce it. Epidemiologist, I believe. Epidemiologist. Uh, <laughs> I'm just an arm, armchair. You know, <laughs> I mean, you do have some experience in this thing. So <laughs> at least in the economic side. Um, yeah, the economic side for sure. But the, it is interesting though, that the, a lot of the stuff that you mentioned that would kind of benefit and help us come back from this is a lot of the stuff that people have kind of been trying to fight for for a while anyways and so it's like yeah if we have this kind of infrastructure if we have these things in place if we allow uh if we support small businesses if we do all these kinds of things these are things that people have been talking about for a long time and then finally it's like the solution has still been the same we just need to do it faster now (laughs) yeah for sure i mean i think that's why like a lot of people who think about climate change saw this as an opportunity to accelerate that narrative and and move towards better technology um i I don't know where i stand on universal basic income i mean i come from a place actually like you said you'd be more communist i came from more of like a free market libertarian stance small Mm -hmm. government you know smaller intervention governments create inefficiencies and whatnot and i've slowly moved closer to the spectrum of like the center. Um, I think both the political right and the political left just value larger government just in different ways mm-hmm. and more government power. Um, like Trump has exceptional power because Obama didn't get rid of any of the exceptional powers that Bush granted himself in mm-hmm. kind of after post 9-11, right? Yeah. Obama continued that policy and then, and then Trump. And so 
the consistency across both parties is the desire for increased power. Um, and I don't know, you know, I, I don't know how that shakes out. Um, from an economic standpoint, the idea of universal basic income, I used to be adamantly against it because my thought was going back to my first business that if you just give everybody money, then the price of goods will rise. So if mm -hmm. I give every individual, you know, 10 extra dollars a month, then the price of coffee will go up, you know, sure. 50 cents across the board um, because there's more, there will be more demand, which will increase the price for the same supply of goods. That's sure. Just, that's fundamental economics. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not so sure about that because there's so much slack in the economy that's created through tech technologically driven deflation. Technology mm -hmm. is inherently a deflationary um, structure. It, it, it destroys value in yeah. a weird way. It creates a ton of value, but it destroys a lot of other value. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, by making costs a lot lower, for example... Amazon, Amazon makes the cost of acquire of buying everything so much lower, but that also, you know, kills stores, lowers the wages across the board, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, UBI can reinflate the economy and um, I'd much rather have universal basic income than giving money directly to corporations <laughs> whose executives paid themselves tens of millions of dollars over the last five years, unprecedented stock buybacks, yeah going into hedge fund managers' pockets. Um, UBI is a way to get money directly to the people. Yeah, I, I think that's a much better way to stim the economy than, you know, supporting zombie companies that shouldn't exist who's, whose executives did a poor job of capital management. Anyways, yeah. that was a lot. This was supposed <laughs> to be the conversation part. No, it's all good. But uh, you are you know much more on that end than I do, which is why I asked, because uh, I'm a musician. <laughs> Yeah, man. I, I, <laughs> you're much more than a musician, though. Um, you're you're polymath, it seems. Um, yeah. Cool. Uh, well, I guess we can uh, wrap it up there. Uh, thank you so much for doing this with me. Uh, that's it's been really great to have all your wisdom and all of the other the variety of things that you spoke on and we both spoke on. So, I mean, it's it's been an honor. So, plug your stuff. Likewise, Santiago. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate it. I'm so happy you reached out. Um, it's been fun, man. And I look forward to listening to other episodes of the podcast. And congratulations on doing 200 plus episodes. That's like, <laughs> Thanks. I know how much work goes into this. For those of you listening, it's like, it seems easy, but it's a lot of work and hard. Um, I, you know, plugging my stuff to look up podcast.com. Um, you can check out my show. You can subscribe to my newsletter. Uh, it's look up on Substack. Uh, I don't think it's connected to the website yet, but it will be soon. Um, episodes are available on iTunes. Look up the look up podcast with Mark Weinstein, um, available on Spotify, anywhere there, that podcasts are available. And then the company that's singing to me these days is called steward S T E W A R D. Um, steward is a platform to, uh, promote regenerative agriculture by helping finance and service small sustainable farmers across the world. Uh, and so you can go on the website today um, and check out the opportunities there. It gives individual investors the opportunity to invest directly into the land. Um, and regenerative farmers actually rebuild the soil 
and soil is one of the best um, technologies to sequester carbon from the atmosphere. So they're a net carbon sink versus most agriculture, which is um, polluting a lot of carbon into the air. So check out Seward uh, and learn more about regenerative ag. You can find everything that I do on my website, SantiagoRamones.com. I make music. Bloom is available now, streaming everywhere. Put it on in the background, put it on your workout playlist, show it to your friends so you can all enjoy it together. You can also buy the thing and get bonus content to get a bit deep into the emotions you can feel with it. I also make music with Power Cycle, an experimental electronic trio. Our first completely improvised album, Too Many Damn Cables, is streaming everywhere. More to come from Power Cycle in the future. To support this podcast, leave reviews, comments, tell your friends about it, and buy my music. Because by supporting me, you're supporting the podcast. I always end the podcast with my three things. They shape my life philosophy. Those three things are love never fails, it's going to be okay, I might be wrong.